yet. But John chapter number 6 is where we are this morning. We are at verse number 14. John 6 and verse number 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. If you were here last week, you know that this little incident takes place immediately after that great miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. The greatest miracle by some measure because it involved so many people, nearly every miracle that the Lord performed involved maybe just one or two people. There were 10 lepers, but this one involves thousands, thousands of people at one time. So there's no denying that it is a miraculous event. And the people were so moved by the power of Christ that they determined that they were going to make Jesus their king right then and there on the spot. And the rest of the chapter is taken up with the aftermath of that miracle. The day after that miracle, the crowds found Jesus on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they began to make their way over there and press him to become their king. That is their intent. And then after this, it leads into a discussion that Jesus has with them about the bread of life. That's the end of the chapter. And then Jesus rebukes them for seeking him for the wrong purpose. They all end up leaving disappointed. And so really in, in this chapter, there was a part one and part two. The part one is the miracle involving bread. Part two is the discourse that concerns bread. But between those two parts, between the miracle on bread and the discourse on bread, you have this story about Jesus escaping into the mountains to be alone, to pray. At the same time, his disciples get into a boat to go over to the other side uh, toward Capernaum to escape the crowds. It's dark. A storm comes up. They're scared. Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And both Matthew and Luke, they they tell the same story. I would tell you that John gives you a very condensed version of the story. You may remember last week that John includes a lot of details in the feeding of the 5,000 you don't find in the other three Gospels. But now when it comes to this story, he leaves a lot of the details out. He does not include the part where Peter walks on the water. This is where that takes place. You find that in the book of Matthew. John does not tell us about that. He does not emphasize the stilling of the storm. He doesn't tell you what the disciples said at the end when he did calm the storm. In Matthew, find out they said of a truth, thou art the Son of God. John doesn't mention that. And so from a preaching perspective, if you were going to preach on Jesus stilling the storm and walking on the water, there's more detail in Matthew and in Luke's account. I think that John does make some emphasis and I'll point that out to you this morning, but I will borrow 
from Matthew's account in just a little bit to give us a complete picture. And the reason why this story is here is because it is a transition between the two days. The first day, they are, uh, they are the feeding of the 5,000. They are on the eastern shore of the Galilee. The next day, the, the people come back and they discover that Jesus is God. He has removed himself to the other side of the sea. And without this story, you wouldn't know how that he got there. It would be a little bit disjointed and a little bit disconnected. But the focus of the story is not on the storm. It never is supposed to be. The focus is on Christ, the Savior. And when we look at the storms of life, you and I have a tendency to focus on the storm, the trial that we're going through, and it consumes our mind, it consumes our energy, it consumes our emotions. But the intent of the storm is to never be focused on the storm, but to somehow see Jesus in the storm. That's what we're going to try to do this morning. Look at it, if you would, in verse number 14. Verse number 14, when these men, when they had, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that shall come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So a great multitude of people, they've come out here, they've witnessed this feeding of the 5,000. The popularity of the Lord is at an all-time high. And there is a groundswell of support that we are going to make him our king. It's interesting, it's interesting what they say, that they would come and take him by force to make him a king. Well, that interests me. How are you going to force somebody to be your king? Yesterday I came to the office early and I turned on my computer and, and they had the coronation of King Charles in England. And I watched about five or ten minutes of that. And, and we, don't, we, we're not, we don't royalty and we're not, we, we don't have a monarchy and all. And so it doesn't great interest for us. But how do, you, how do you force somebody to be a king? This crowd who has watched Jesus create fish that never swam in an ocean and create bread by passing all the processes of creating bread, they look at him and say, wow, if he can do that, then he could be our king, break the Roman yoke, and give us free stuff as well. This is going to be our king. So 5,000 men plus the women and the children, they are ready to pronounce him their king, and their popularity and the, and the excitement is spilling over to the disciples, and this is what they have left all to follow him for. And so maybe this is the moment. But you got a little problem. The problem for them is in verse 15, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come. They, they're not asking him. They're not asking him. They just, they, they, we're just going to do it, and we're going to force to make him a king. We don't even need to talk to him about it. We don't even need to ask him. We don't even need to see if this is his plan. We are going to make him a king. Well, I just want to say, just in warm up, you can't make him do anything. The Bible said that Jesus knew their thoughts before they ever got to him. When Jesus therefore perceived that they should come. How are you going to sneak up on somebody who knows you're coming? Huh? How are you, how are you going to do that? 
He, he, he knew their thoughts. But you know, there's a lot of people that have the idea that we're going to force Jesus to do what we want Him to do. I don't, I don't really care what Jesus thinks. It doesn't matter whether this is His plan or not. I have, I have my plan. I, I know what I want Him to do. And, and they come to God with a list of demands and you're a good God as long as you meet my list. I'll sing your praises and I'll talk about your faithfulness as long as you're faithful to meet the things that are on my list as if God owes us anything. Can I tell you that he's a good God if he never does another thing for you and I, if he never blesses me again, if he never does another thing for me, he's still a good God. You don't manipulate God. You don't intimidate God. We don't put God in a corner. We don't box Him up. We try to force God into our will. What an awful thing to try to do. And even if you're asking for a good thing, God still didn't have to do it. Wouldn't it be a good thing for Him to be king? What's wrong with that? that, that that's actually a good thing. Now it's not the right time. It's not the right place. It's not the right circumstances. And besides, God had a whole lot bigger plans in mind than this. I don't have time to preach this, but in a minute we're going to see where they said he's a prophet. We'll talk about that in a minute. And we're going to make him a king. Prophet and king, there's one missing. Priest. Priest. That, that's what he's going to be. Prophet, priest, and king. we got to go to Calvary and die for the sins of the world. But they're not interested in that. They're just this prophet and this king. So, so, so God doesn't have to, to, to agree with us even if we are asking him for a good thing. He may have something else in mind. There's been, listen, there's been many times that you and I would have chosen something else for our life but found out that God had a different plan. And, and the Lord knew that. Look down in verse number 26. Verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. He says, you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. And so many people will accept Jesus for the, for, for the wrong reasons. What can you give me? What, what, can I, what can I get out of you? And the multitudes are so fickle because on one day they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the next day they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And when they realize, when they realize that he's not going to accept their offer of becoming king, they don't like what he says in the discourse of bread. And by the end of the chapter, they've all scattered and they have all dispersed. And so Jesus comes to them in this setting in verse number 14. Look at it. These men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, watch what they said. They said, this is of a truth that prophet that should come into the world. Now, who are they talking about? That prophet. I've been teaching the Bible Institute a little course on understanding Old Testament Judaism. And we spent really a year talking about the Jewish foundation of our Christianity. Judaism. Judaism in the Old Testament helps you understand Christianity in the New Testament. And Thursday, I dealt with Christ as the fulfillment of Judaism. The law, the prophets, the writings the types, the shadows, all of it, it all points to Jesus Christ. And, and, and hold your finger right here. I want you to go all the way back to Deuteronomy 18. I'm going to show you just one of them. 
Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you would. And I'll show you what, what, what verse they were reading when they said, this is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. Deuteronomy chapter 18, look if you would in verse number 15, one verse. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet. Notice it is capitalized. A prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Now this is Moses, this is Moses speaking. And he's speaking to the children of Israel. And he says that God will raise up unto you a prophet, specific, capital P, a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren. This is what Moses said, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Moses was the most important figure in the nation of Israel. He was their leader. He was their redeemer. He gave them the law. He led them through the wilderness 40 years. Moses, there's none greater than Moses. And, 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 and Moses said that God is going to give you, a, one day he's going to raise up a prophet. And I find this so interesting, a prophet like unto me. Had Israel been paying attention, they could have looked at Moses and said there is a picture of what the Messiah is going to look like when he comes. A prophet like unto me. Now, now, now hang on to your hat for just a minute. He, he, Moses did not say that I will be like the coming one. He says the coming one will be like unto me. You know what he said? I'm just reading the King James Bible is all I'm doing. All right? That's, that's all I'm doing. Just reading it. If we were to... I can't preach what I preach Thursday night because i got to move on. If we were to make a list of all the great things that Moses did, Ten Commandments, that's pretty big. Ten Plagues, that's pretty cool. Parting the Red Sea. Uh, manna, brazen serpent. Forty years in the wilderness. But one day when we get to heaven and you see Moses, you go up to Moses and ask him, Moses, what was your greatest accomplishment? He's not going to tell you Ten Commandments. He's not going to tell you, let me tell you about what it's like that Red Sea. He's not going to tell you about them ten plagues. No, that's not what he's going to say. Moses is going to say that the greatest privilege that I had was to be like Jesus and to point to others that this is what the Messiah will be like. So when the people said, when the people said, this is the truth, that prophet that should come in the world, they're thinking about Deuteronomy 18.15. That's what they're talking. And the idea, the idea is that as the second Moses, he could do for them what the first Moses did. What did the first Moses do? He delivered them from oppression, Egyptian oppression. And in John 6, they're hoping that he comes and he does the same thing that first Moses did and deliver us from oppression. The Jews expected a prophet and a Messiah. But they didn't expect him to be in the same person. They missed both because he's in the same person. So we have this mass multitude. They see Jesus as the second coming of Messiah, that great prophet that has been promised, and they want him to be their king to do for them what Moses has done. And Jesus knew all the time that you just want me to be an external king, but you don't want me to be an internal king. You want me to rule over the land, but you don't want me to rule over your heart. So Jesus is escaping from this. He's getting away from this. That brings us down to verse number 16. Come, come back to John 6. Look at verse 16. i got to get to the storm. 
When even was come, his disciples went down into the sea, entered into a ship, went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was now dark. Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. It's getting late in the evening. Jesus goes in the mountain to pray. Disciples get into a ship, headed across the sea to the other side. Storm comes up. It's dark. It's in the middle of the night. Jesus is nowhere around. So we come to verse 19. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nine to the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. And they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. There's only two times in the Gospels where Jesus demonstrates power over natural forces. Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, he is in the ship and he's asleep and a storm comes up. They wake him up. Master cares thou not that we perish. He gets up, peace be still, and there's a calm. That's the first time. Now this time, this time, the disciples, seasoned sailors out on the sea. This time another storm comes up, but this time Jesus is nowhere around. They're toiling, they're rowing, they're, they are making absolutely no headway. And in the middle of the night, they look out across the water and they see a figure coming toward them. Jesus walking on the water. And I love how the Bible puts it. It just says walking on the sea. Like, why wouldn't he be walking on the sea? Like it was just so natural for him to do something that is supernatural. You know, sometimes when, I am, when, I, when I'm studying, I... I got to be careful that I don't go down rabbit holes. All right, I, I tell my guys just just keep the point, just stay on the point, and, and don't don't sidetrack. Don't don't. But but I, I went down a rabbit hole when I was studying this passage, and I and I I wondered if there is any scientific explanation to walking on water. I just I just wondered if there was any if there was any way to explain that. You know that there are natural laws that we are bound to. But Jesus is not bound to, he, he, he can suspend those laws. For example, the law of gravity. We are bound to that law. But Jesus could suspend that and ascend back to heaven, all right? So, so he, 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 he submitted himself to those laws while a man, but at any moment he could suspend those laws as well. And so I thought about what would it take, what would it take for me to walk on water? The reason, when, when you walk, when you walk, um, gravity, gravity, um, when you, when you take a step, the, the density of the earth overrides the gravity and steps so that when you step on the ground, um, uh, you, you can't go any farther than the ground because the earth is so dense. However, when you walk on water, the reason why you sink is because the, 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 the water is not, it's not dense enough to, to, to stop you, and, and so, so, so you go down. So, so when Jesus stepped on the water, he either had to make the water the same density as the earth, or make himself weightless, I, 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 I suppose, so that he didn't sink beneath the water, or maybe he just walked on the water. Maybe, maybe that's just what he did. Maybe he just, he just walked on the water. Did you know that there are charismatic charlatans that say that we have the power or can have the power to command the weather? That, 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 that the storms, like every sickness, is, there's a demon behind every thundercloud and behind every storm, behind every bush. And, and so we can denounce those demons and rebuke those demons in Jesus' name. The disciples never rebuked the wind. 
In fact, Paul was in a storm. Couldn't stop it. Alright? So, 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 so nowhere in scripture does the devil have power over the storm unless God grants him permission. But how many of you know, how many of you know that you're going to go through storms in life? Huh? In fact, I told somebody the other day at a meeting I was in, I said, right now in our church, I said, we have more people going through dark waters, deep waters, than at any time in the history of our church. We have more people right now with violent winds and waves crashing our soul and, and this and that and hospital and back and forth. More people right now. And we don't come to church to, to whine and moan. We, we come to church to worship God. But at the same time, we don't deny reality, right? And we have more people right now in our church that are going through some storms. It just seems to be a season of storms. And I want you to know that Jesus is able to calm the storm or he can calm you in the storm. And I'm interested this morning in the miracle that he performs in us, not just the miracle that he performs in the storm. So I want to give you three thoughts about seeing Jesus in the storm. Three, I'm done. First of all, I want you to notice how Jesus calms their fears. Calms their fears. John tells us that there are about 25 or 30 furlongs out. A furlong's an eighth of a mile. So they're three or four miles out to sea. It's interesting that the Lord told them to get in the boat and sail to the other side. So while they are doing what the Lord said is when the storm comes up. Just because you're trying to obey the Lord doesn't mean that you can have a life that is free of trouble. Sometimes when you try to serve the Lord, a storm stands in the way. And so they get in this boat and they're afraid. And the first time they were in a boat and a storm came up, they had Jesus in the boat. But this time, Jesus is not there. He is not there that they can see in their storm. If you'll read the story, to make matters worse, it seems like they have taken the only boat available because the next morning all the people get up and they come down and there are no boats there. So now they're in a storm out in the middle of the sea. They're rowing. They can go nowhere, making no headwinds, boisterous waves. Jesus is up in a mountain praying, and there's no way for him to get down from the mountain down to him. And none of us want to go through storms. But I will tell you that you will never know if God can calm the storm if you never go through a storm. The Lord could have easily rebuked the wind from the mountain. The Lord could have easily made it lay down and without ever leaving the mountain of prayer. But that the winds blow all night long and disciples, they for hours, for hours, they toil and they're making no progress and their hearts are overcome with fear. And they will learn that the Lord is watching them all the time and that the winds are subject to him. But the waves that threaten you and I do not threaten him. He doesn't end the storm, but what he does, he comes in the storm. And the storm that rocks you and I and that brings fear to our heart may be the vehicle for God to reveal himself to you and I in even a greater way. When they could not see him, he still had his eyes on them. And while the waves rock our boat, they lay down at his feet. So verse number 19 says that they were afraid. Have you ever been afraid? You ever been up all night with fear and anxiety? Ever been there? 
The first time that the word fear shows up in the Bible is Adam. I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. His fear was because of sin. All fear is not a direct result of sin. But have you ever been afraid? Fear has different effects on you. Fear, fear can damage your emotions, obviously. Fear can have a physical effect on you. Stress, anxiety, fear, silent killers. But fear can have a spiritual effect on you, instability, discouragement, a distrust in God. And what fear is, it is an expression that I don't trust God. You know, there are some people who live in a constant dread that they're going to get a disease or my child is going to be crippled with some accident or there is a nuclear bomb that's going to go off or whatever it might be. Can I tell you all of those things may happen? All of those things may happen in your world and in your lifetime, but we are not supposed to live in fear of those things. The news media feeds off of fear. If there was no fear, all news media would have to shut down tomorrow. But they feed off of fear. The politician wants you to know that if you'll, if you'll elect me, then, then all of your troubles and all of your fears will be done. He wants you in fear of the next guy so that you'll vote for him. The doctor has to tell you, the doctor has to tell you the absolute worst case scenario. Going in to have your gallbladder removed, but you could die in the surgery. And the medicine that you're taking, you just need to know the side effects of everything from bad breath to suicidal tendencies. Fear is built into our society. So when Jesus comes walking to them on the water, the storm is still going. And he says, it is I, be not afraid. It is never so dark a night that he can't see you. The waves are never so high that he can't get to you. There is never a storm so strong that he can't keep you. He never comes too late. He never faces an obstacle. He never succumbs to the waves. I've, I've, I've read some preachers on this, and they said that the reason why Jesus walked on the water was to prove to us that we could do it too. And I think that's a ridiculous idea. The reason why Jesus walked on the water was not to prove that you could do it, but to prove that you couldn't do it. It is not to teach people how to walk on the water. It is to teach us that when you can, Jesus can. That when you face something impossible, it's possible for Jesus. It's not the last storm that they would face, but they would know that he came to them in the storm and the storm's not too great for him and he's either on the mountain praying for us, he's on the sea waiting for us, but there's no reason to fear. So Jesus calms their fears. But then I want you to notice that he builds their faith and I want you to go to Matthew 14 with me. This is Matthew's story and John leaves, leaves this out of his account. But look at John 14 and look at verse 28. Same setting. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. He said, come. And when Peter was gone out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. He began to sink. He cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, All thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Now, I, I've read every opinion on why, G, on why Peter asked to get out of that boat and walk on the water. What made him think that he could do that? And some say that Peter was being presumptuous. This is another case of Peter sticking his foot in his mouth. Maybe he's trying to be a show-off. He's going to do one-up on the disciples, something they couldn't do. 
But here's the application. The application always is that if you are going to get to where Jesus is, you got to get out of the boat. That's always the application. Meaning you got to take a huge leap of faith. You got to attempt something that nobody has ever attempted. So, so I have heard sermons on how to walk on water and getting out of the boat. And I don't want to stretch the application just because it's good preaching, all right? I, I don't want to do that. But I think that we miss something. Peter says, Lord, I'd like to come to you. He doesn't say I'd like to walk on water. He says, I'd like to come to you. Bid me come to thee on the water. I'd like to get close to you, but the water's in the way. There's an obstacle. There's an obstacle, and you can read it like I'd like to do something that nobody's ever done before, or you can read it, I'd like to come to you, but I need for you to overcome an obstacle that stands in my way. He never does attempt to walk on the water again. Because there would never be an obstacle like water in his way. When he writes First and Second Peter, he never does include the story about walking on water. I think I would have told that story. Huh? He does say things like casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. He's not just doing something to post on Facebook. He's trying to get to Jesus. He's under no illusion that he had the power to walk on water. But when the Lord says comes, it's going to take great faith to take that step and, and, and the Lord bids him to come to him, not to do something spectacular, but to build his faith. And can you trust me to step out of the boat? Can you trust me to sustain you and to hold you up on these ways? Can you trust me? And the truth of the matter is, is all of us have a little bit of faith. To take us so far. But there'll always be a storm. There'll always be water in the way that stops us from getting closer to Jesus. But when our faith fails, the Lord is there to extend his hand toward us. And when the Lord keeps us through a storm, it builds our faith for the next storm. It builds our faith for the next storm. You know what Peter learned? He didn't learn that he can walk on water. He learned that he can't walk on water, but Jesus will be there to pick him up lest he drown. If you walked on water, you would walk away such a proud person, but that was not the end of this incident. He did not walk away confident of his abilities. He walked away confident in the Lord's abilities. So Jesus calms their fears and he builds their faith. But I want you to notice thirdly that Jesus inspires their worship. Stay in Matthew and look at verse 32. When they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship, ship came and worshiped him saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. I'll tell you why that's significant. This is the first time in the Gospels accounts that the disciples called Jesus the Son of God. There is some question as to when the disciples knew who Jesus was. And we know that that revelation is progressive and they didn't have full understanding until after the resurrection. We understand that. They began to follow him because they believed that he was the Messiah. And the more miracles that he performed, the more convinced that they were. But being the Messiah and being God, it's not necessarily the same thing in their mind. For the first time, the disciples make the confession, Thou art the Son of God. You are divine. 
this is the first time that they make that claim that you are the Son of God. Because of the storm and seeing Jesus in the storm, they have a new revelation of Christ. They learn more about Him. There's a truth about Him that becomes more real to them. The relationship is different now. They see Him in a new light. They learn something about the person of Christ. Remember that all of this is said in that context of them wanting to make Jesus to be king. Those people saw Him as a political figure. That's what the disciples thought too. They thought that He is going to be the political Messiah. We have thousands of people right now that want to force him to become king. And if the disciples had stayed there, it's possible the disciples would have said, now's the time. Let's join in. Let's force him to become our king. But Jesus is not ready to be their king yet. And so what he did is he sent them into a storm. There is a danger that you join this crowd of wanting to force Jesus to be something that he's not. He sent them in one danger to remove them from another danger. When it comes to them walking on the water, they have a deeper understanding of the person of Christ. But in the storm, it revealed something about the power of Christ. Because the disciples had just watched him perform the greatest miracle he'd ever performed. 5,000 men besides the women and the children. But now, in this storm, we need to see his power again. And our faith is so weak sometimes that even though I know he can do that, but can he do this? I know that he has power over this, but does he have power over this? I know he can do this in their life, but can he do this in my life? They see something of the power of Christ and they see something about the presence of Christ. John emphasizes in his account, that when Jesus came into the boat, the Bible says they immediately were on the other shore. Now, I, I, I'm not going to make too much of it. Maybe, maybe that's another miracle. But Jesus not only calms their fears, he not only calms the storms, but he delivers them safely to the other side. Safely. He took them where he said he would take them. There is something about having Jesus in the boat that brings assurance in the storm. The storm did not surprise him. He did not have to hurry down off of that mountain and try to get out there real quick to rescue them. And when they could not see him, he was always looking at them. And verse 33 says they worshipped him. I'm done. I'm done. They worshipped him. Not on Sunday morning when the quartet was singing. Not on the Saturday night singing when the hot shot quartet came in and all the emotions were up. Not Jubilee when Brian McBride or whoever, our, our favorite preachers. Not, no, no that's, that's not it. But when the waves were boisterous and they thought that they would die and they were powerless against the wind. 
And they saw Jesus in the storm. In the storm they worshipped him. And worship is sweetest when it is said against a trial that God has sustained us in. Seeing Jesus in the storm, would you bow your heads with me this morning? The song says he can calm the sea, he can calm the storm in me. He can give us peace even in the midst of the storm. We never learn to trust him in the calms of life. There's nobody in our church praying for a storm. I've never prayed for a storm. I've never prayed for a trial. My faith is not that strong. I like the calm seasons of life is what I like. But sometimes God sends the storm. Sometimes he calms it. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he brings healing. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he answers the prayer. Sometimes he says, I have a better way. But can you trust him? Can you trust him in the storm? I'd like to tell you that I just feel like something good is about to happen. I don't know. But I know my Savior. I know my Lord. And I know he'll walk with you every step of the way. That when you can't see him, he can see you. The wind is not too mighty. The wave is not too boisterous. And he cannot get to you in the storm. Our heads are bowed.